Well, let's start by reading the passage. It is a prayer. Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus, but also for all the saints, which are all the Christians around the world, both when the Bible was written and today. So let me read from 14, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, and then we'll spend some time in prayer ourselves. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we are humbled by your word every time we open. Humbled by your complexity, humbled by your enormity, Lord, humbled by your unlimited power, your unlimited grace. And Lord, we see in this passage this, this prayer that Paul prays with such depth and richness of wanting the church to be strengthened to the point where they can be filled with the fullness of who you are. Lord, let that be our prayer. In our church, a small glimpse of or a small part of your global church, that us 20 or so people would be praying for spiritual increase in one another's lives, in our own lives, Lord. Would the world and its concerns and anxieties fade from us? And would the spiritual reality of who we are, which has been declared to us through Ephesians, consume our hearts so much that we continue to say, strengthen us, Lord, to understand more. Strengthen us, Lord, to comprehend more. So that when, Lord, the time comes to be called into glory, we will know already what it would be to be filled with you and then experience even more in glory. My Lord, our King, we pray that your spirit would speak to us and soften our hearts this morning. In the Salvo for Brimston, we pray that your name would be glorified above all. In Jesus' name. Amen.
you have to get to this point in Ephesians and be incredibly moved by what we've already heard. You must get to a point and, and just be in love with this letter, that this letter is written to you and me as people of the church, as saints, as Paul calls us, made saints by Christ. And the beauty is we're only halfway through this letter and we've already been through so much rich depth of knowing who we are in Christ, understanding who he has made us to be, how he has claimed us to be his children, adopted us into his family. It is, it's absolutely incredible. And now we have this incredible prayer where Paul is praying, preparing us for the next section. It's actually a dividing point in the book of Ephesians. He's gone through and taught us all that we are in Christ, all that we need to know. He's used that term over and over again, in Christ, in Christ. We are saved in Christ. We are adopted in Christ. We are redeemed in Christ. We are made alive in Christ. We are God's workmanship through Christ. He says it over and over again. We are no longer Jew or Gentile because now we are one new nation called the church who are in Christ. Paul has been teaching us all this knowledge so that we have a firm and solid identity of who we are. And we can see very clearly that it's important to know what we believe. It's important to know as a Christian what we believe. We call this doctrine. And Paul is very concerned with doctrine. Doctrine is simply a set of beliefs. What do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Christ? What do you believe about how he has accomplished salvation for you? And Paul is incredibly concerned with doctrine. He, can, he is concerned with what you, brother or sister, believe. What do you believe? What do you believe about who you are now? And he has spent three chapters declaring these doctrinal truths so that you know who you are in Christ. So the very first point of discipleship, that is being a student of God before the doing and active uh, working out of our faith, is to know and to ever be increasing in knowledge. In many ways, I think a pastor has a very simple job because their role is very simple, to teach the church to know who they are in Christ so that they can then go and live out who they are in Christ. Now, of course, there's many complexities that make it a complicated job, but simply put, a pastor's job is to teach believers to know who they are in Christ so they can go out and live. For Christ. And that is where Paul is going to head in the next three chapters. But before he gets there, he has something really important to do. And that is to pray for the saints to have strength to comprehend so that they are so firm that they will forever endure in the work that God has prepared for them to do. He knows that we do not have the capacity to understand all that we are in Christ. He knows that we're going to float to and fro. He says that in Romans, in uh, Romans 9, that we will not do the things we want to do, but do the very things we hate. He knows that we're going to go back and forth. So he reminds us 
over and over again through the word who we are in Christ. And then he prays a spiritually rich prayer so that we would have the strength to comprehend and to endure the work that he has prepared for us. So before he gives us the work, he prays. It's so similar to what James has for us in his letter later on in the scriptures near the end of the New Testament. James says we want to be not only hearers of the word but also doers of the word. Paul is the same. He wants us to be hearers of the word and as we hear the word to acknowledge the word, grow in knowledge and then go out and live for Christ. The Christian lives differently to who they were before they were saved. But in order to live that out and endure through it, oh, how we need the strength of God and the power of God to take hold in our lives so that we can do what he has for us to do. Our passage today is, is Paul's second prayer in Ephesians. He's already had one prayer. We see that in chapter 2. And now we have this second prayer. And the first prayer was that we would have the power to know, that we would know the power that we have. And this prayer is that we'll be strengthened to live out that power or to live in that power. So the first one was that we know who we are. We have the power to know who we are. And now this prayer is all about having the strength to go live out in that identity. Let's look verse by verse. We're starting in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. For this reason. When we see for this reason or therefore, we have to go back and read what Paul has already said or what the writer has already said to understand what it is that he is doing now. So we know that he is bowing his knee before the Father whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. But what is the reason for him to bow down before his Father? What is the reason for him to want to pray to the Father at this point? Well, if we go back and read, we need to go through chapter 3 and probably back to chapter 2, but it would seem that he is saying for this reason, for this whole reason, from chapter 1 to chapter 3, for all of that reason, for everything that I have said previously, this is the reason that I bow my knee to the Father in heaven. Because the mystery of God has been revealed to men. The mystery of God, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, that has been revealed to man. Not only that, but that he chose people before the foundation of the world, chapter 1, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Because this has now been revealed to man, he bows his knees. So the first one is that the mystery of God has been known. The reason that Paul wants to bow his knees to the Father in heaven is because the mystery of the gospel has been made known to his people. That is worthy of falling to our knees in worship and prayer. His second reason is because the dwelling place of God is with man too. Uh, chapter 2, verse 22. The dwelling place of God is with man by the Spirit. 
This is profound. Paul is a Jew. He knew that Jews do not believe that we can be in the presence of God. But because of Christ dying on the cross, raising to life, we now are made whole. We are now made righteous in heaven. Therefore, we can have his spirit dwell within us. So Paul is so moved with awe by the mystery of the gospel being made known to man, man, so compelled by the fact that the dwelling place of God is not far away, but inward and with us. And in this, because of this, the outcome, the result, is not Jew and Gentile, not slave and free, not barbarian or Greek, but one new people under God. That's what Paul's been saying. The mystery of God has been made known through Christ, in Christ, because of Christ. Now we have the spirit dwelling in us. That means the dwelling place of God is with us, his saints, and we are no longer any other race but one race in Jesus. That's it. And Paul says, for that reason, because of the beauty and majesty and glory of this message, because of the result that it has claimed for us, I bow my knees before this Father. Now we might go, oh, I, I, maybe you pray on your knees all the time. Maybe that's a discipline of yours and it's a beautiful discipline to humbly uh, come down before God and say, I surrender before you. That is the image of coming to our knees. But for, for a Jew, it wasn't customary to pray on your knees. It was actually customary to pray standing up. Maybe you remember the parable that Jesus gives us of the, uh, the Pharisee that goes in the temple to pray and the tax collector that goes in to pray. The Pharisee stands up with his arms wide and saying all these uh, great things that he does. Thank you that I am not like other men, like this tax collector. The tax collector comes in, falls on his knees, and says, God, I am a sinner. Now, what we see in that picture is that it was a demonstration of, of, of prayer and how we respond to God, but it was normal for Jews to stand up and pray. But in a moment of serious surrender before God, in a moment where we are moved by the things of God or moved by grief that the world has caused, that we want to come to God in a place of surrender, they would fall to their knees. For the tax collector, he fell to his knees in repentance. For Daniel in the book of Daniel back in Babylon, he falls to his knees in prayer because he is desperate for Jerusalem, desperate to go back to the hometown. For Paul in Acts when he's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, he falls to his knees in sorrow that he may never see them again. Falling to your knees was a state of reverence, of awe, of respect. And Paul, stating that he is on his knees in this prayer, is stating to us that he's in awe of God. He is moved to the very core of who he is. The gospel, as he writes this letter in prison, draws him to a place of prayer. Do we believe Paul was actually on his knees in prayer? I don't believe he would have written it if he wasn't. In prison, 
wet, cold, unfed, writing the mysteries of the gospel to a church that he loves so dearly, he falls to his knees thinking of the beauty, thinking of the fact that he is now bound to them by the Spirit. People he once persecuted, people he once hated, Jews and Gentiles separated, now one. And he is in awe of God and he falls to his knees. And his intro calling God Father confirms the intimacy in which he has to God, knowing that he has access to him as a father, which Cody spoke about last week. We are one family, one church, under one God, and he's coming to him as the father of this one family. Now it says here from uh, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now that could mean that he's praying to the God who created all things. He is the beginning of all things, the father of all things. But it's really important to look at this word father in the context of Scripture. And what we see is that God doesn't call himself the father of all things. He calls himself the father of the church or the father of the saints. We know that Jesus himself did not call everyone children of God. And therefore, God was not their father. In fact, Jesus, when confronting the Pharisees, he says to them, you are of the father, your devil, the devil. So most likely when we read this, that he bows his knee before the father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, he is referring to all the saints, all those who have called on the name of the Lord, all those who are in Christ Jesus, who have fallen asleep or gone to be in glory with the Lord in heaven, and those who are still here on the earth, you and me, the church that exists and that is alive today, are named after their father, their father God. That alone is worthy of praise, that we can call God Father and have access to him as Father. Verse 16, we get into the details of his prayer that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What Paul prays for his new family, for the church, for the saints, he prays according to the riches of God's glory. Now this is, this is an, an important part of the prayer because Paul's not praying for a limited strength or a limited comprehension, he prays according to the riches of God's glory. Now, if you have a millionaire and he gives you $50, he is not giving you money out of his riches. But if you have a millionaire and he gives you $100,000, he's giving out of his riches. It's going to hurt him. It's going to, it's going to cost him something. But when Paul prays according to the riches of this glory, he is praying that God would give from his abundance. And when we pray that, we're acknowledging and we know from doctrine, from what we believe, that God is limitless. He has no end. He has no beginning. 
God is self-existent, self-sufficient. So when we pray according to the riches of your glory, we're praying for something that is beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding. This is a gift, a strength, a love, a comprehension that is far greater than we can understand. And this is what Paul wants for the church. He's been preparing the church for this. If we read back through 1, 2, 3, chapters 1, 2, 3, we will see that we have barely scratched the surface. Our sermons are insufficient. Our preaching is insufficient. If you think you have read enough of Ephesians already or understood enough of Ephesians already, you're wrong. You haven't grasped it. We need more strength. We need according to the riches of God's glory. We need the riches, the abundance, the limitlessness of God to be poured out on us so we may grasp just that tiny bit more. And tomorrow we'll need that all over again so we can grasp a little bit more on top of that. And the next day and the next day. And then when we're 90-something years old, we will still be saying, strengthen me, O Lord, according to the riches of your glory so that I may comprehend just a little bit more of who I am in Christ. What a prayer. What a way to start. To come to this place of saying, according to your riches, according to your riches, strengthen them, Lord, through the power of your spirit in that them. Paul's prayer is always spiritual. He's always praying for our spiritual needs or for the Ephesians' spiritual needs. He very rarely prays for himself. But when he does pray for himself, he prays for spiritual increase, that he's able to serve the church better or preach with fearlessness or preach with clarity or articulate the mystery in a better way. Paul But this is actually pretty challenging from Paul because he's in jail and he writes a few letters from jail and while he's in jail, he's not asking the church to pray for him to be released. He's not asking for an early release date or that they would uh, uh, give him a better, a a more comfortable experience. No, he's, he's asking for the gospel to go forward, for him to have strength, for the church to be strengthened. How can someone have this attitude among them. Well, if we go back to the start, the introduction of this message, we see that it was good doctrine, a good understanding of who we are in Christ, a good understanding of what Christ has done for us gives us the capacity to know that we can be in prison and be forgetting about our release date but rather praying for the church to be strengthened or praying for the gospel to go forth. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't go away from here thinking it's wrong to pray for things like healing or release from prison if that was our circumstance. It is not wrong for those things. But the emphasis that Paul puts his prayers on is spiritual increase and spiritual blessing. That is the emphasis he has on his prayers. So how can we shape our prayers by spiritual needs for others? How can we shape our prayers by 
thinking about the gospel advancement in our neighbourhood or our lives? Well, it starts by meditating on the truth of Christ. It starts by meditating back on Ephesians 1, 2 and 3 and allowing it to soak deep into our soul so that we, like Paul, bow our knee before the Father in heaven because we are so overcome by the richness of this message. He says he wants us to grant us strength with power through the Spirit in our inner being. So he wants us to be strengthened according to the riches of Christ. If we are strengthened according to the riches of Christ, we are strengthened to a point where we can bear all things in the strength of God. He wants our hearts to be dominated by Jesus. Dominated by the spiritual things of Christ, by the spiritual realm. He wants our mind to be set on the things that he has spoken about. So when he's praying for strengthening, he knows our weakness. He knows how much we need a discipline in us that comes not from ourselves but from the Spirit. He knows how much we are empty and void of strength. So he's praying, God, I have said all these wonderful things. You have given me all these wonderful things to say to your church, but they need strength in their inner being. They need strength to comprehend. So when we have this strength to comprehend in our inner being, uh, as we realize that it's the the, the depth of understanding, it's not just an external understanding or a, a shallow understanding, but a deep understanding. We come to the knowledge and the understanding that we are children of God. And if children, then when we stumble and fall and sin is exposed, we don't keep running into all the more evil or give up and say, well, I've done it, I've blown it, it's too late. No, we turn and run to him in repentance. To be granted strength with power through the Spirit in our inner being means deep down we know that we are a child of God. Deep down we know that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And sometimes it feels like deep down we don't know that. Sometimes it feels like Deep down, we feel like we're the worst of all sinners. And that's why we need this prayer. Not only do we need to know these things, but we need the Spirit to teach us these things, otherwise we cannot know them. Corinthians tells us our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We're concerned with the inner self. A Christian is concerned not with what's going on externally, our body fading, our hair falling out, our skin getting wrinkly. We're concerned with what is going inwardly and what is happening in our soul and mind. And in order to live this new life, this new life that Christ has claimed for us, we have to be strengthened 
inwardly. Without this, we'll wander aimlessly without direction and without joy. A Christian who is going about this by the grit of their teeth, frustrated, loosely connected to a church but not really involved, hardly reading the word, praying every now and then, has no heartfelt prayer, is one who is not strengthened, is one who is falling, stumbling and in in complete disarray, up and down in emotions. We need this prayer to draw us to the word and to these first few verses over and over again. I need to be strengthened in my inner being, not weekly, not just on Sundays, but day after day and even more so moment after moment. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts. that Christ may dwell through our hearts. That is an incredible statement. The, the outcome of this prayer, the result of this prayer, if we see this in verse 17, is that we are strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. He says the dwelling place of God is with man, and now we have Christ dwelling in our hearts. Now, it almost says that if we're not strengthened, we don't have Christ. It's a confusing passage, but what we have to understand is that we are full of the Holy Spirit, or sorry, we have the Holy Spirit, but we're not always full of the Holy Spirit. We can pray for a greater increase in the Holy Spirit so that we may have a greater strength to endure suffering, to evangelize, to disciple, to serve more, to parent better, whatever it may be. We can ask. Father, strengthen me, fill me with the Holy Spirit. But if we want Christ to dwell in our hearts, what we're saying there is we want Christ to dominate our hearts, to rule and reign over our hearts. Now, we just need to clarify, heart is not the organ that's beating blood around our body, but rather the very essence of who we are. It's the soul, the spirit of who we are. It's what will leave our fleshly body and go up to be with Christ on the day of glory. This is what we want, Christ to rule over. Not just our thoughts, but our emotions, the complexities of who we are, our identity, everything about us. If we're wandering off aimlessly with no real real structure in our faith, we will either prove that we have no salvation at all Or it will be a faith that is one of grief and pain as we float back between spiritual things and worldly things. Christ has no need for that. Christ does not want that for us. Paul, in his prayer, doesn't want that for us. In fact, he's saying, be so founded in these truths and be strengthened by the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ does rule in your heart and rather than being In and out for your whole of life, you'll be steadfast and unmoved and enduring. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts. And the result of Christ dwelling in our heart is that we will be rooted and grounded in love. The end of verse 17. 
Christ dwelling in our heart means we are rooted and grounded in love. What this, what Paul's doing here is he's using two different uh, different categories of analogy here, two different metaphors. He's saying be rooted, so be planted like a tree beside a stream. We get those images of Psalm 1, a tree planted next to a stream that grows up strong and big, being rooted in love. We are planted in love. Our roots run deep into love. And grounded, or the other word is founded, which comes from a, a building, a building metaphor of a strong foundation. We get the images there of, of the uh, man who builds his house upon the rock rather than the house upon the sand. Two metaphors that he's giving us. If we are, have Christ dwelling in our heart because we've been strengthened in our inner being, we are rooted and grounded in love. That means love flows from the Christian, from the saint. Love is the outcome of the dwelling Christ in a brother or sister, a brother or sister, a saint. But this love, this love is not just an emotional, warm feeling, but it's a matter of the will. And what I mean by that is it's an action. It's selflessness. It's a giving love. This love is seen by all. When we look at the scriptures, we see this love in Jesus, first of all, most importantly, that he gave his life for who? His enemies. That while we were still enemies of God, he loved us and died for us. So this is the love that we are rooted and grounded in. It's not a warm feeling towards people because I can tell you I can walk out on the street now and I can find people I don't love. But that is not the love we're talking about. If I'm strengthened in my inner being, grounded, uh, rooted, sorry, Christ dwells in me and I'm rooted and grounded in love, it is a choice, a matter of the will to say, I will show you that I love you. I will show you that I love you. I will demonstrate that I love you just as Christ demonstrated that he loved us. Those warm feelings, those emotions will come as we choose to live out the love that Christ has put in us. John 13, 40, 34 tells us, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you love one another as I have loved you. That is a bold and outrageous commandment to say to people. Love one another. Love the brothers and sisters in the church as Christ has loved you. That means no matter what they do to you, there is love for them because we have done horrible things to Jesus. We've rebelled against him, rejected him, and we still, and he still loves us. So this means that the dwelling of Christ in us is seen by people. Later on in that passage in John 17, he goes on to say that it's by the way we love one another that people will know that we are his. That's a challenge for us, church. If we have Christ dwelling in us, we are rooted and founded in this love, that people will say, why do they care about each other like that? Why does that church in Hamilton South, in 
Central Hunter, Brangston, care so much about one another. I want to go and investigate. People will want to know where this love comes from. I pray with Paul that this is the love that will be seen in our local churches. Going out of our way, selflessly giving our time, resources and strength for one another. And the overflow of that is it doesn't stop with just us, but goes to the neighbour, to the stranger, to the lost person in the world. The continued prayer is here is that although we are rooted and grounded in love, that we may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and height, and depth. So what Paul goes on to say is, yes, you have been strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit so that Christ dwells within you, and you are now rooted and grounded in love, love but we want you to comprehend how how wide, how high, how long, how deep this love is. In other words, the love that you think you have for people isn't yet enough or isn't yet the end of all the love that you can give because the love that you've received from Christ is still not all that you could receive from Christ. What Christ or what Paul is praying here is, yes, we are rooted and grounded in love. Now, Please, Lord, strengthen us to comprehend how much love there is to give. This love is as long as eternity past to eternity glory, from when we were chosen before the foundation of the world to when we will be glorified with Jesus. It's as high as the heavens where Christ came from and descended and incarnated as man and as low as the grave he went to. It's as far as the east is from the west in which he scattered and threw our sin from us. This is the comprehension that Paul wants us to grasp and knows that we can't, so he prays for us to grasp it. Bowing before the Father in heaven, crying out to him, saying, help them comprehend how much love Christ has put in them. The people of God who are rooted and grounded in love, who should be seen and known for love, let them see how much more they can give. That means a brother or sister who hurts you, harms you, betrays you, when they come to repent, there's more love to give them. That means when we're walking the streets, and start ministering to someone and it is revealed that they are either a murderer, a rapist, or pedophile, there's more love to give them. We are rooted and grounded in a love that takes a spiritual increase to comprehend. I love Spurgeon's quote on this one. It is so long that your old age cannot wear it out. So long your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. Your your 
successive, successive temptation should not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. And this is the love that you and me and all the saints are rooted and grounded in. I pray, along with Paul, that we would comprehend how much of that there is to give, how much of that we have and how much of that we have to give. If you think you're at the end of love, you're not. You might be at the end of your love, maybe for your wife, spouse, husband, wife, children, for the lost, for the brothers and sisters that surround you. Maybe you think you've just had enough. They've gone too far. You're not. Because if you are in Christ, you are rooted and grounded in a love that far outweighs any love that comes from humans. A love that comes from heaven. A love that comes from an eternal God. Therefore, it is an eternal love. I don't want to miss this little few words here with all the saints. We can't ignore that. He prays that we would comprehend with all the saints. This love that we are rooted and grounded in, this love that we see demonstrated through chapters 1, 2, and 3, through the work of God, through Christ, and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, is a love that we will only ever experience the fullness of when we are with the saints, that is the church. If you think that church is a small extra thing to your Christianity, you are wrong. It is the thing for Christian faith. It is so important to be surrounded by the saints, to have communion with the saints. I've heard it said that the spirit runs thicker than blood, and that is true. That means we are bound first and foremost to our brothers and sisters in Christ, then to our brothers and sisters of the flesh. And if you Disagree, you disagree with the scriptures. Church, it is so important that we are not just gathering every now and then, but we know one another and love one another so that we can experience and comprehend together the breadth, the length and the height and the depth of Christ's love. Church, the gathering of the saints, is what Christ came to claim on the cross. He didn't come to claim you on your own. He came to claim a people for himself. It's not about you. It's about Christ and his people, the church, one new nation under God. And stress to you the importance of being with one another and knowing one another and experiencing those fallouts with one another, disagreements, hurts, and then having to deal with what it means to forgive and love again. Because that's what Christ has done for you. And if you isolate yourself from the church, 
If you cut yourself off from brothers and sisters, you will not experience that. And to know, verse 19, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. The inner strengthening of the Holy Spirit leads to the indwelling of Christ, which leads to abundant love, which leads to God's fullness in us. I'm going to pause and listen to that, brothers and sisters. The inner strengthening of the Holy Spirit leads to an indwelling of Christ, which leads to abundant love, which leads to God's fullness in us. God's fullness in us. That is an incomprehensible statement. It's indescribable to think God's fullness would dwell in us. Think of the attributes and characteristics of God. Power, majesty, wisdom, love, mercy, patience, kindness, long-suffering. Every other thing that God is and does, to be filled with the fullness of God, therefore means to be totally dominated by him, ruled and reigned by Christ. The old self has left. There's nothing left of who we once were. The old, the new man has come. The new person in Christ has come to be emptied of ourselves and to be filled with the fullness of God. This is the prayer of Paul for the church, for Ephesians, but for the global church, that we would come to a place where we are filled with the fullness of God. Knowing who we are, living out who we are, saying, yes, I'm a child of God and knowing what that means, believing that the power of the gospel will change lives, so going boldly to preach it. The fullness of God. We've got to be careful here. Some people will take that to mean that the attributes and characteristics of God mean they're for us, making us exactly like God. That is not what it is saying. It is saying if we are filled with the fullness of God, our heart, our soul is no longer longing for the things we long for, but we're longing for the things that God longs for. For the church to be glorified, for the church to have reached all that he, have, he has called and brought them into the kingdom, longing for the fulfilment of the scriptures so that we may dwell with him forever. I'm going to be honest, I don't think I'm there. I don't think my heart, is filled with the fullness of God. My flesh still really dominates at times. This isn't asking us to do anything. Well, except pray. Pray. Pray before the doing to know what Christ has done so that we know who we are. And if we keep praying this and keep enduring day after day, asking for strength, asking for the Spirit to dwell Christ in us, 
asking to comprehend the love, asking for the fullness of God within us and our brothers and sisters, thinking outwardly as well, asking for this as a church. I believe this prayer is not just a once-off prayer. We need persistency. We need consistency to keep praying this prayer. He concludes with just this worship of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus throughout all generation, forever and ever. Amen. Of course, when you pray a prayer like this with the spectacular blessings that we're asking for, you come to a place where you worship and Paul's worship is to acknowledge that this isn't even the limit of what we could ask God for. In fact, you don't have enough words or enough imagination to think of what you could ask God for. So Paul is sitting here in prison on his knees and saying, God, I think I've asked for everything. I've asked for the fullness of you, but you are far more magnificent than I know. Therefore, you have more to give, more than I could ever imagine. Please, Lord, I just worship you. That's all I have. I worship you. So Paul is deliberate in placing this prayer here at this point in his letter. He has spoken about the mysteries of the gospel. He's about to head into the things we do as Christians. And for some reason over the last few decades, we have moved away from wanting to ever hear that a Christian has to do anything. Because churches became legalistic at some point, we are afraid of hearing that there is a duty as a Christian. As soon as we hear you should do or you shouldn't do, Alarms start ringing for us because we have been cultured to think this way as if those are wrong. But it's not true. It's not legalism to say that we have a duty to pray or legalism to say that we have a duty to preach. But it's the very essence of who we are and who God's created us to be. It doesn't save us, our prayer or our preaching, or our discipleship, or our service, but it confirms the salvation that has taken place in our life. The do's and the don'ts that will come in the next three chapters come from a place of saying, your whole life has been rewritten. Your whole life has been transformed. So Paul is going to say, do so many things and don't do so many other things. And he's not saying that these will either save us or lose our salvation, but rather he's saying that because of who you are, because of chapters 1, 2, and 3, because you are now a new creation in Christ, this is how we should live. We are living out the holiness that we are labelled in heaven. But his first do for us to do is to pray. That we can't go on to chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and be good servants of God and great preachers of the word and love people with this abundant love 
without the power of prayer. We need prayer in our lives. Daily, heartfelt prayer as Christians. It is a Christian's duty to pray. It is like breathing. So when we say pray and read your word, Paul is saying that for your own good. He's saying it if you want to be healthy, If you want to be functioning well in this newness of life that Christ has given you, you need prayer and you need the word. It's not legalism to set aside an hour or two or more, whatever you desire, 15 minutes if that's where you start, to pray on your knees or pray however you want to pray and read the word. That is not legalism to set aside time to go out and evangelize or disciple or serve the poor or whatever it may be. It's not legalism to do these things. It is a practice of the newness of what Christ has claimed us to be. A firefighter doesn't go into a fire without his helmet jacket and oxygen tank and claim that it's legalism to put them on. He goes in with them knowing that he needs them to survive to save others. The reason you need to pray and read the word is because you need them to function properly in order to save others. Lack of prayer and a lack of reading of the word is the biggest boast a human can have against God. It's like bragging, saying, God, I don't need this. Need this. Your apathy, your apathy, apathy towards prayer or Bible reading says to God, I don't need this. From what we see of Paul, a very faithful servant of God, is he knew so, so well that he needed, that it was breathing to him. It was life to him. He needed it. So the rest of this book, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, is going to sound a lot like legalism to you if you don't have a right mindset on what it means to be a new creation in Christ. If you go on and skip one, two, and three and just grab on to three, four, and five and say, I'm just going to do and don't do these things, you're going to become very unhappy very quickly. But if you've prayed for strength, to be rooted and grounded in love, to be filled with the fullness of God and meditate on these one, two, and three, these chapters of knowing who we are in Christ, children of God, we will go on to four, five, and six and read the do's and the don'ts and say, God, please keep me from the don'ts and let me have power to do the things you want me to do. And when I don't, I rest in the fact that I'm your child. I rest in the fact that there's grace. I rest in the fact that you're still making me into what you want me to be.
Let's pray. Oh, Father. I know how empty I feel at times. And I know my emptiness comes from an apathy towards prayer and your word. I forget who you've made me to be. I forget my new identity. I go on living in my own strength. And I know my brothers and sisters would feel the same at times. So, Lord, whether we are strong or feel strong or feel weak, whether in poverty or riches, make our knee bow as we reflect on those glorious words of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, that God dwells in man. There is one new nation, the church. Strengthen us in our inner being that Christ may dwell in us, that we will be rooted and grounded in love and comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of your love so that we may be filled with the fullness of God. I pray this, Lord, for our church in Hanover and the church out in Brainston, and let it be our prayer. Remind us of this prayer be praying for one another, for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.